Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here on this Saturday, March 12th, 2022. There's a question in the chat as to what this hymn is. It's not actually a hymn. It's a, well, I mean, I suppose it's a hymn, but it's it's a choir piece for... Uh, let's see, two-part choir, soloist. The text is by Stephen Starkey, a pastor in uh, Michigan, and the tune, the tune, the music was written by Kelvin, Kevin Hildebrand. Um, and of course it was written, for, or the composer of the tune, I should say, is Griffith Hugh Jones, and the com- setting is Kevin Hildebrand. All right, so I'll provide a link to it um, in the chat. So you can see that. Hopefully that'll post. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know. Maybe it won't post to Facebook. It doesn't look like it's going to come to Facebook. Oh, there it went. All right. Very good. Yes, it's good to have you here with us today for Congregation of Prayer. What I like to do on Saturdays is look at tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading, do some meditation upon those, uh, as well as the psalm that we've been praying all week. Maybe even talk a little bit about the hymn that we've been singing as well. All right and uh, put that all into context. Speaking of the hymn, let me grab my book for that. <laughs> oh, got all sorts of resources here. All right, very good. Well, let's start. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, let's say our memory verse for the week. My word shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 11b. Our psalm is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of the Psalms here. Psalm 149. A meditation here from Father Patrick Henry Reardon. A verse in the Greek version of Blessed Hannah's Canticle reads, The Lord has ascended into heaven and has thundered forth. He will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to our kings and shall exalt the horns of his Christ. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. 
Eusebius of Caesarea saw in this line a reference to the ascension of our Lord and the consequent proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. Quote, The Lord who descended from heaven, the very word of God, again ascended to heaven and ascending, has he thundered forth with his divine power the evangelical message, ta evangelikon kerygma, so that it might be heard throughout the whole world. He himself will judge the ends of the earth and those who live therein, and he has received all judgment from the Father. But he has also given power to his disciples, even the apostles and the prophets, that is, to say, our kings, and he has exalted the horns of his Christ, that is, of his people so named because of their participation in Christ. Again, that's Eusebius of Caesarea, Fragments from the Prophetic Selections, Book 1, Paragraph 18. This exaltation of the saints in the victory of Christ, their evangelical struggle for the gospel, and the ultimate judgment of the world thereby are the themes of Psalm 149. Again, three themes. Exaltation of the saints in the victory of Christ, the evangelical struggle for the gospel, right, and the ultimate judgment of the world. This is a psalm of triumph and warfare, specifically that warfare described in Ephesians 6, the battle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 As we have had occasion to observe so often in the Psalms, combat and invocation, battle and blessing are inseparable in the evangelical life. Combat and invocation, battle and blessing are inseparable in the evangelical life. This is really appropriate for tomorrow. Therefore, we may take this same sixth chapter of Ephesians, a true warfare passage, to help us penetrate the meaning of Psalm 149. To pray this psalm properly, we must be numbered among those warriors that it thus portrays. The saints shall exult in glory. They will rejoice in their quarters. The exaltations of God are in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. The latter blade so described is, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6.17. It is the part, or it is part of that whole armor, the panoplia of God, which the Apostle Paul tells us, to put on so that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, to be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 13. This, two, or this double-edged sword of God's word will be of scant use to us, nonetheless, if we are not further girded and more amply fortified. Thus, to guard the affections of our hearts, lest they, let, they wax wanton, we wear the breastplate of righteousness to protect the reflections of our minds lest they be distracted. We don the helmet of salvation to be defended against the fiery shafts of satanic assault, lest we fall victim to the deceptions. We bear the shield of faith. And since our psalm summons us forth to wreak vengeance on the, upon the nations, or among the nations, and to repro- reprove among the peoples, to pass on them the judgment decreed, we shoe our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's all Ephesians six fourteen through 17. Above everything, we continue always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Ephesians 6, 18. Because our prayer is never to be separated from the general struggle of the gospel in this world. The saints are the one group of people on this earth who speak the final decisive truth to its inhabitants through their perseverance in the evangelical life, testifying to the final exaltation of the meek, and thereby rendering judgment on the wor- on what the world fancies important. Quote, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? End quote. St. Paul asked the saints of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, or 2. Meanwhile, 
assured of the final outcome of the combat, and confident even now that this will be the glory of all his saints, their song is the glorification of God for his ever-renewed wonders in the struggle. Quote, Sing to the Lord a new song. Let his praise be sung in the church of his saints. Let Israel be glad in her maker, and the sons of Zion exult in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, and sing to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, and will exalt the meek in salvation. End quote. All this dancing of the meek, all this music of the saints, what is it but a foretaste of the day when they, quote, shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads? Revelation 22, 4. All right. I did the same thing with the children, so it's a lovely way to kind of draw it all together, to take Paul's language of Ephesians 6 and use that to understand what the psalm is also confessing. All right. Our Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Genesis chapter 32. And he, Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. <laughs> then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask me or ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen that God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. All right? So, uh, a lovely text about the struggle we have with God, of course, and it will draw well, or many connections, I think, in your mind, with the struggle of the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman uh, with Jesus, you know, as he... He and she wrestle, not physically, but with words, right? Um, really, all of his, both his silence and his accusations, uh, his name-calling, uh, putting her um, in a place of, well, great humility, right? And then blessing her, right? Very much parallel to what happens here with Jacob. Uh, now, who is Jacob wrestling with? We've had this conversation before, I imagine. Um, you know, we've been doing this a couple years now, but <laughs> it's worth... Uh, revisiting, all right? This is what uh, Luther writes in his Genesis lectures on this text. This passage, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, is regarded by all as among the most obscure of the whole Old Testament. Nor is this strange because it deals with that sublime temptation in which the patriarch Jacob had to fight not with flesh and blood or with the devil, but against God himself. But that is a horrible battle when God himself fights and in a hostile fashion opposes his opponent as though on the point of taking away life. He who wishes to stand and conquer in this struggle must certainly be a holy man and a true Christian. Accordingly, this story is obscure because of the magnitude of its subject matter, and because of its obscurity, all other interpreters pass it by. It would also be permissible for us to pass it by, but we shall say what we can, and then Luther's going to spend page after page. Okay, um, So then he he talks about uh, Lyra, and he talks about Augustine, saying it's an allegory and something like a fable from Aesop. Um, 
And then he says, we shall therefore make an attempt to see if we can dig out the true sense and doctrine of this passage. Uh, if we cannot attain it perfectly, we shall nevertheless be very not be very far from the mark. All right. So then he tries to set aside any kind of opposition here. Um, calls it a man, not an angel, um, but an angel and a man that that can be uh, can be understood either way. Uh, we should probably read this part. <laughs> it's hard to know which parts to read. Um, Whenever, therefore, the name of angel is not expressed, we do not understand it as angels. In this passage, it is expressed expressly stated, you have prevailed with God. Not only you have striven with God, but you have also conquered. Likewise, the statement follows later, I have seen God face to face. All right. And he talks about Hosea, and false prophets, Hosea cries. Um, ah, here we go. But, Luther says, after going through all of this with Lyra and Hosea and other things, our opinion is this, that the wrestler is the Lord of glory himself, or the Lord of of glory, God himself, or God's Son, who was to become incarnate and who appeared and spoke to the fathers. All right, we've talked a lot about this, the angel of the Lord being the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Here it is in Luther, 500 years ago. Um, He gets it from some others even before him. For God in his boundless goodness dealt very familiar familiarly, there we go, with his chosen patriarch Jacob and disciplined him as though playing with him in a kindly manner, right? Just a little wrestling on the ground, right? But this playing means infinite grief and the greatest anguish of heart. In reality, however, it is a game as the outcome shows when Jacob comes to Peniel. Then it will be manifest that they were pure signs of a most familiar love, right? So initially Jacob sees it as hostile, right? And, and grief, anguish of heart, um, but it's actually an expression of God's love for him. Hmm. So God plays with him to discipline and strengthen his faith, just as a godly parent takes from his son an apple with which the boy was delighted, not that he should flee from his father or turn away from him, but that he should rather be enticed to embrace his father all the more and beseech him, saying, My father, give back what you have taken away. Then the father is delighted with the test, and the son, when he recovers the apple, loves his father more ardently on seeking that such love and child's play gives pleasure to, his, to the father. These games are very common on the domestic scene, but in the affairs and contests of the saints, they are very serious and difficult. For Jacob has no idea who it is who is wrestling with him. He does not know that it is God, but because he later asks what his name is. But after he receives the blessing, he says, I have seen the Lord face to face. Then new joy and life arises from the sad temptation and death itself. This, therefore, seems to be the teaching of this story. If only I could expound it according to its worth, that according to the example of Jacob, God at times is accustomed to play with his saints, and as far as he himself is concerned, which quite childish playing. But, here's the key, to us whom he tempts in this way, it appears far different. However, it is excellent and very salutary exercise in perfect instruction, and this is blessed with a very happy end, namely, that one learns, quote, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 2. To the flesh, it cannot seem otherwise than, e- than an evil, troublesome, and gloomy will. But when, when we are weeping, God is smiling in the most kindly manner, and he takes pleasure in those who fear him and hope in his mercy. See Psalm 147. Moreover, the temptation to despair, which usually accompanies this experience, increases the grief and agitation of the flesh when the afflicted heart complains that it has been forsaken and cast off by God. 
This is the last and most serious temptation to unbelief and despair, right? To imagine one forsaken and cast off by God, by which the greatest of the saints are usually disciplined. He who is able to stand and endure in this temptation comes to the complete knowledge of the will of God, so that he is able to say with Jacob, quote, I have seen the Lord, etc. I did not think that the Lord meant so well with me. But before we reach this stage, life may be a trying experience. Therefore, the teaching of this story concerning the temptations of the greatest saints is open and clear. With great delight, they taste how kind the Lord is. See Psalm 130, or Psalm 1, excuse me, see Psalm 34, 8. But even though not all grasp or cons- understand these contests, they nevertheless are not to be rejected for this reason. All right. So again, to look at the struggles of this life, um, from the perspective of God, it's, it's, it's child's play, right? He's, he's just instructing us. He's teaching us. From our perspective, it, 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 we don't want to belittle it or make it seem light. Um, it is difficult. It is trying. It is t- um, difficult. We are God's children, though, right? To understand that children don't always understand why their parents do what they do for them, right? Same idea here. I like the, the parallel. Right, so um, I've said it this way, uh, maybe on a sermon, even on these texts, right? That um, no matter how it seems, God is not out to hurt and harm you. He's not seeking to kill you, uh, but perhaps to drown the old Adam. All right, to make it proper distinction there. Um, no matter how it seems, even when when things seem to be at their lowest, right? Um, you can see that really well expressed with the prodigal son, right? The son has lost everything. He squandered everything the father gave him, and yet um, the father's mercy still rings true, right? Despite that, right? But he doesn't realize that until uh, everything has been taken from him. Uh, same thing with Job. We talked about that uh, on Wednesday night, right? Good. And then the epistle for tomorrow is Romans five, uh, a very famous section. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace, this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, so here we see Paul um, expressing what we talked about, Uh, which could be a reflection both of the Old Testament and the Gospel text for tomorrow. Again, that, I would say, wrestling with Jesus, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, right? Canaanite woman. So right there in the center, that we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, right? This is God's work in us um, as he reveals the glory of God to us. Um, Again, I said this is a very famous section, and it's used extensively in our... Lutheran confessions, but I think probably the most important place for us to consider here is Article um, 12 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, Apology, Article 12, which is on penitence, right? Especially appropriate today (laughs) or during this season of of Lent. Um, Lent is a time of uh, special discipline, perhaps, um, fasting and other kinds of bodily preparation, right? Of almsgiving, um, but additional prayer, um, and, and you know, we gather quite historically, quite intentionally on Wednesday as a congregation for prayer. Right? We had, oh, I think we had thirty folks here or so on on Wednesday night, which is lovely. All right, so about half what we get on a Sunday typically, or a little bit less. 
right? So that's that's what the season of Lent is for. Again, um, uh, acts of penance, fasting, bodily preparation, right, um, and and special prayer. Um, one of the other things we did is uh, introduce to you the opportunity for private absolution on Wednesday night. We had a few people take advantage of that, uh, which um, they all remarked on the benefit of that. So I would encourage you to consider confessing and being absolved as well. Um, and so penitence is involved in this. Now, here we're, we are, in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, responding to, um, this is the defense of the Augsburg Confession, um, responding to the Church of Rome, um, who had a whole complicated sen- uh, um, system of, of penance, right? So we want to talk about what that means, right? So penitence. Um, how does this, I forget what this article, how do we translate that in the Concordia, the other, I think we just call it repentance in, yeah, it's repentance in the um, other version. All right, so anyway, here we go. I'll start it off, and then I'm going to jump to where they use the Romans text. Um, They, meaning Philip Melanchthon, (laughs) and all the confessors who signed it, yeah. In the 12th article, again on repentance, they approve the first part where we explain that those who have fallen after baptism can obtain the forgiveness of sins whenever— and as often as they are converted. I think we talked about that maybe last week or the week before, right? Um, we preach for conversion so that the baptized are converted to faith again. What? Yes, they can reject their baptism. But um, they, Rome, condemn the second part in which we say that the, that contrition and faith are the parts of penitence. And they deny that faith is the second part of penitence. Right? And again, you can look at the confutation for that. Uh, where it says in the twelfth article, there the Lutheran prince's confession that the church should give absolution, such as to return the, to penitence the condemned. But the second part of this article is utterly rejected. For when they ascribe only two parts to penitence, they come into conflict with the whole church, which from the time of the apostles has held and believed that there are three parts to penitence. Okay, contrition, the sorrow over sin, confession, and then satisfaction satisfaction. That is, those are the acts of penance. They are fathers, the acts of charity, the fasting, etc. As, as a sh- to prove that you're truly confessed, that you've truly uh, been absolved. Mm-hmm. This part of the article, therefore, can in no way be admitted, nor can that which asserts that faith is the second part of penitence, for it is shown that all their fa- faith proceeds from penitence inasmuch as nobody repents unless he believes. Right. So they actually understand our position quite well. All right, so what should we do here, O Charles, most invincible emperor? Remember the Augsburg Confession? The defense of the Augsburg Confession is written to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. This is the very voice of the gospel. This is the very voice of the gospel, that by faith we obtain the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. (laughs) By faith we obtain the forgiveness of the sins. Sins. This voice of the gospel, these writers of the confutation condemn, and therefore we can in no way agree with to the confutation. We cannot condemn the voice of the gospel so exceedingly salutary and full of consolation. If we deny that by faith we obtain forgiveness of sins, what is this but to insult the blood and death of Christ? Hmm. Yeah, patience is running thin. <laughs> we therefore beg you, most invincible Emperor Charles, to hear us out patiently and consider carefully this most important issue involving the chief doctrine of the gospel, the true knowledge of Christ, and the true worship of God. All good men will see that especially on this issue, we have taught what is true, good, salutary, and necessary for the universal church of Christ. 
or you might say the Catholic Church. They will see that the writings of our theologians have shed much light on the gospel and have corrected many vicious errors, which, through the opinions of the scholastics and canonists, that's the, the Roman lawyers, have or had overwhelmed the doctrine of penitence. All right. So, again, there's two parts for us. Um, um, the first part is what? Uh, contrition, that's sorrow over sin. The second part is faith, right, which believes the word of absolution. That's it. Satisfaction for your sins, making uh, amends, you might say, uh, restitution is not included. Ah, but the Spirit might work that in your heart, God willing. You see that with somebody like Zacchaeus, right, who repays all those whom he had defrauded after he's been forgiven by Jesus. He does it from a free and cheerful heart, not under obligation or duty. All right. All right. So I'm going to skip all the preface here. They, t- they do all sorts of introductory things. Um, and we'll get to where they use Romans 5. All right, here we go. As the second part of our consideration of penitence, or repentance, you might say, we therefore add faith in Christ. Right. So the first part was contrition over, over sins, right? The sorrow over sins. Second part is faith in Christ. That amid these terrors, the gospel of Christ ought to be set forth to consciences. The gospel which freely promises the forgiveness of sins through Christ. So again, it's faith, a specific faith, faith in the forgiveness of sins through Christ. They should believe, therefore, that because of Christ, their sins are freely forgiven. Um, so if you didn't have opportunity to confess on Wednesday night, this is exactly what happens in the rite of private absolution or private confession, depending on what you want to call it. It doesn't really matter. You can use either name. It's on page pages and on 329 is the Christian questions and answers 290 something right there it is 292 so contrition over sins then conclude after confessing I am sorry for all this and I ask for grace I want to do better as contrition and then the pastor says God be merciful to you and strengthen your faith amen and then here the second part faith do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness yes let it be done for you as you believe Right? So right there at the heart of the, of the right of uh, individual confession and absolution, right out of uh, Luther's small catechism, right? first is contrition. I am sorry for all this, and I ask for grace. I want to do better. And the second, faith. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes. All right. And then you receive forgiveness, of course. So um, keep going. This faith, faith in the forgiveness of sins through Christ, strengthens, sustains, and quickens the contrite according to this passage, Romans 5.1. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. See it? This faith obtains the forgiveness of sins. This faith justifies before God, as the same passage attests. We are justified by faith. See it? This faith shows the difference between the contrition of Judas and Saul, on the one hand, and that of Peter and David, on the other. The contrition of Judas and Saul, Saul, Old Testament Saul, King Saul, did not avail because it lacked the faith that grasps the forgiveness of sins granted for Christ's sake. On the other hand, the contrition of David and Peter did avail because it had faith that grasped the forgiveness of sins granted for Christ's sake. Right? So the distinction between Judas and Peter, both of whom deny Jesus um, uh, on Monday, Thursday, and <laughs> to Good Friday, the distinction is one, look to Christ for forgiveness, and the other, unfortunately looked to the Pharisees to forgive him. Same with Saul and David, right? Who 
who looked to God to forgive? Was it Saul or was it David? David, right? All right, so good parallels there. Nor is love present, that is, love that would be worked out and maybe acts of uh, acts of um, uh, penance, right? Caring for one another or, re- or restitution or amend, making amends, right? Love, nor is love present before faith has affected reconciliation. First forgiveness, then love, okay? For the law is not kept without Christ. There can be no amendment of life without forgiveness of sins, according to this passage as well, verse Romans 5, 2. Through him we have obtained access through Christ and Christ alone, right? This faith gradually grows and throughout life it struggles with sin to conquer sin and death, but love follows faith as we have said above. Filial fear, brotherly fear, can be clearly defined as an anxiety joined with faith where faith consoles and sustains the anxious heart, whereas in servile fear, faith does not sustain the anxious heart. The power of the keys administers and offers the gospel through absolution, which is the true voice of the gospel. In speaking faith, therefore, we also include absolution, since faith comes from what is heard, as St. Paul says in Romans 10.17. Hearing the gospel and hearing absolution strengthens and consoles the conscience. Because God truly quickens through the word, the keys truly forgive sin before him, according to the statement, Luke 10.16. He who hears you, hears me. Therefore, we must believe the voice of the one absolving no less than we would believe a voice coming from heaven. Absolution may properly be called the sacrament of penitence or sacrament of repentance, as even the more learned of the scholastics say. Meanwhile, to now to the point of uh, both wrestling, Jacob wrestling with God or with uh, Jesus, <laughs> and also then the Canaanite Syro- or Syrophoenician woman wrestling with Jesus, right? Listen to this. Meanwhile, this faith is nourished in many ways, amid temptations, through the proclamation of the gospel and the use of the sacraments. Amid temptations, you see it? These are the signs of the New Testament, that is, signs of the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, they offer the forgiveness of sins as the words of the Lord's Supper clearly state, this is my body, which is given for you. This cup is the New Testament. So faith is conceived and confirmed through absolution through the hearing of the gospel, so that it may not succumb in its struggles against the terrors of sin and death. This understanding of penitence or repentance is plain and clear. It adds to the honor and power of the keys and the sacraments. It illumines the blessing of Christ, and it teaches us to make use of Christ as our mediator and propitiator. All right. So this is something, I don't know, it just never really clicked for me until I was an elder at a congregation um, in Illinois, before I went to seminary, that um, that no one believes in Jesus until Jesus comes to them and forgives them. First forgiveness, then love. First forgiveness, then fear. First forgiveness, then trust. Right, and you see that here. Right, it's only after, um, after let's see, looking up at the Jacob text, for example, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's what Jacob says to the man. Right, And so the, he said to him, what is your name? He says, Jacob. And he gives him a new name, which is God's job. That's one of the <laughs> clues here. And he even says, you struggle with God, right? So notice the faith that Jacob uh, has in God comes after wrestling with God, not even recognizing him, um, but only later being given the new name and the blessing, right? Of forgiveness, really. Uh, by the way, if you know the context of this story, 
This Before this, Jacob is hiding from Esau for fear of him, right? They're grown men now, um, but Esau is uh, threatening him, right? Or at least Jacob understands Esau to be a threat. After wrestling with God, Jacob confronts Esau uh, without fear, knowing that, that God will see him through, right? Whether he dies or he lives, God will see him through, right? And it turns out that Esau actually is seeking to reconcile with him. So Jacob um, had no... F- proper fear, love, and trust in God. And it meant that he also did not have love for his neighbor, namely his brother, Esau. Right? So this, this exercise that God puts him through, or this um, childish game, is a, or childlike game, as Luther described it, actually is, conf- is bringing him to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? It's bringing him to contrition to be forgiven. Right? And then it works out in forgiveness for Esau and Esau for him. It's really beautiful. Right? Um, and of course, faith comes through this absolution. Same thing happens with the Canaanite woman. You'll hear this tomorrow, where she wrestles with God and wins, right? How does she win? Because God in Jesus, right, the Word made flesh, actually um, is, uh, in a sense, put in his place by the woman. <laughs> he holds, she holds him to his Word, right? And she doesn't back off. She holds on tight like a dog, you know, just nipping at, the, at her master's heels, just wanting a wanting a, a snack, right? Crumbs from the master's table. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful text, one of my favorites, right? Um, God is not forgetting her or it sort of seems that way, but the reality is, is that he is bringing her to faith, to trust in him, right? And he does that through um, contrition for the forgiveness of sins. All right, very good. So uh, again, that was Augsburg Confession, Article 12 of the Apology, right? One of our Lutheran confessions. Um, by the way, Lutheran confessions, the reason why I, I like to give you some instruction in them in whatever forums I can uh, is because uh, it, it is the, those are the theological expositions of our faith that we have said teach properly what we believe as, as Lutherans, as Christians. Um, I have promised, uh, as well as our day school teachers, have promised to not teach anything contrary to them <laughs> uh, because they agree with God's word. So... How would you know if I'm teaching contrary to them unless you had actually studied them and read them, right? So um, our lay leaders get instruction in the Lutheran confessions. Uh, Our teachers, uh, monthly, we meet to study the Lutheran confessions. Again, if we are teaching contrary to them, then that rebukes us and corrects us. If we're not, um, it at least then provides some instructions so that we can uh, teach uh, more in harmony with what we believe God's Word says, all right? So... That's the reason we do it. Um, but part of your job as lay people is to make sure that we're not teaching or um, preaching contrary to that word, uh, to that confession. Um, but you can't do that unless you've read it. So I would advocate for you, if you haven't already done so, to um, purchase for yourself a copy. Uh, this version is probably um, the most readily available. This is Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions from Concordia Publishing House. You see the logo down there, second edition. It's available, I think, for about $30 in hardcover, right? Um, lovely devotional reading, too. You can use it for that as well. All right, very good. Edomites live south of Israel. Um, oh, yeah, you're, you're talking about Jacob, right? I'm going in Edom. Um, it's named after Jacob, by the, or after Esau, by the way. Edom is just another name for red. So it's just the land of the Edomites. Um, so the river Jabbok is what you want to look up, right? Where is the river Jabbok? Um, I want to say it's to the south and to the west. That would be my memory here. Um, the Jabbok, oh, actually it goes east and west. 
um, out of off the Jordan River. All right, and I'm looking here. I'm trying to get some more Arnon. So it's it's a east. It goes east west. You have Reuben and Gad. So it's on the other side of the Jordan. All right. So it's on the um, that would be to the east of Israel. Yeah, one of the four tributaries um, into the Jordan River. Peniel, Jamrick, da, 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 da. Yeah, these are all cities east of the Jordan River. So it's east of the Jordan, but south of like Bethsaida. Um, Sukkoth is near there. All right. Shatim is south of there. So some of these names. All right. So, yes, on the other side of the Jordan. Yeah, Esau's descendants, right? Jacob was um, in the promised land, right? The 12 tribes and Jacob would be in the promised land, but Esau was on the other side. Uh, later, actually, two of the tribes settled in the land of Esau. Hmm. I think so. Yeah, they disappeared pretty quickly. Good. All right, our catechism for this week, Table of Duties. Uh, by the way, it's a Table of Duties, called Table of Duties. It's not a confession of faith so much. It is, well, it is, um, but it's just a table of scriptures attached to the various vocations you know, and stations of life that um, God places us in. So here in particular, what does the Bible say towards bishops, pastors, and preachers? All right. Uh, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right. Let's pray the collect for this week. O Lord God, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide the people of your church that following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On this Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Today, we rejoice with Sandy, Pam, and Nicholas, who all celebrate their baptism. We pray for the households of our church, especially Sarah, Chelsea, Joan, Gary and Barb, Don and Jean, and Tara. We pray for those ill, receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Bev, Kelsey, Amanda, Dan, Brad, Timothy, and Janice, Ken, Norm, Jim, and Mike, and Donna. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, and Paul. Pray for our mission of the month, Camp Luisimo. We pray on behalf of our uh, relatives interceding for all their needs and in thanksgiving for all our benefactors that support the work of the church. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Do not think we have a commemoration today. No. All right. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, 
that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. (laughs) Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Okay. Uh, Before we sing the hymn, let's talk a little bit about it, um, because it's a new one to you. I'm sure it is to me. And uh, first, the tune. First is the tune. The tune name is Fortunatus, new. Uh, It was a new tune to the text Fortunatus, uh, written by Carl Schalk. All right. Um, And the source was originally published in Spirit, a magazine for Christian teenagers, March 1967. A heading, the heading was A Carol for Lent. Carol. So he called it a carol. Um, sing my tongue the glorious battle, right? Sing the ending of the fray. Is that a carol? I guess it is. I hadn't really thought about that. A Lenten carol. Comments. Um, these were his comments, I think. I think this is Carl Schalk. Yeah, these are his comments. The text, Sing my tongue the how glorious battle is not a mistake, but a different version of the translation. A note from the composer reads, Lent is a time in which Christians recall Christ's suffering and death, yet it is a time which must never be separated from Easter. Here is a Lenten carol which tells of the triumph over death which Christ won for the whole world. This, the melody attempts to reflect the subdued joy of Lenten season in its simple yet sturdy melody. The text by uh, Venenatius Fortunatus has been used by countless Christians since it was written about 1,300 years ago. Beside the regular keyboard accompaniment, an alternate setting is provided for the middle stanza in which the accompaniment can be played on a keyboard or by appropriate instruments. We hope this simple Lenten carol helps your remembrance of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. We hope it sings its way into your heart. All right, so we'll sing, sing my tongue, the glorious battle um, later on. So that's the tune. But here's the text, all right? Um, so you say, why don't I know this? Well, this is why. Peter Prang, or Prangi, or however you pronounce his name, uh, born in 1972, he's only five years older than me, wrote this hymn in the fall of 1999 while preparing for the observance of St. Michael and all angels at the parish in Jacksonville, Florida, where he's, he was a pastor. Prangi was not satisfied with the existing hymns for the occasion in the church year. He explains, quote, I could find no existing hymn that properly surveyed the scriptural truths of this important festival. Not even a mention of St. Michael. So I decided to write one myself. <laughs> the hymn was originally sung to the tune, um, See, Here, Bin Eek. Uh, see, Bin Here. Okay. So there you go. I'm trying to think here. Uh, I think he's actually, he was a, he's actually a Wells pastor. I think so. All right. Anyway, so it's because it's in their hymnal too. Good. Uh, yeah, what's the difference between a carol and a hymn? <laughs> uh, I don't know <laughs> how you would describe that. Anybody have any good ideas? Write it in the comments there. All right, well, let's see. Let's see what the Google tells us. Oh, actually, DuckDuckGo. Um, carol, Christmas carol, Christmas hymn. What's the difference? I, I mean, I suppose Christmas is good. Um, carols is a religious topic, without specific religious contents? I don't know. Hard to find anybody who actually knows the difference here. <laughs> a hymn has been around for centuries. A carol is very festival, uh, very festive. I don't know. 
Yeah, I guess the idea is it's the kind of thing that you could go about your day singing a little bit easier than a hymn, maybe. Um, carol comes from the French word, or the Italian, I should say, carolari, meaning to sing, to dance, and thence uh, carola means a ring dance. Italians have also broadened the French word queroli, I pronounced that terribly, or carol, to describe tunes used to accompany celebration dances, whether religious or not, mostly or not. Carols were originally thought of as a circle dance, which was accompanied by singing. A hymn has more theological implications originally and was not made for dancing. Later, Augustine, the early church theologian, took it even farther and saying, giving very strict guidelines of theological truth and music solemnity for each church in the hymn status. All right. So it's a carol is, uh, I don't know, this is probably, I think that's probably accurate. Makes you want to move a little bit. Yeah. A lot of people don't know the distinction. Dun, 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 dun. This one makes me want to march. <laughs> That's still movement, right? All right, good. So let's sing it. Swift 
as lightning falls the tyrant from his heavenly perch on high, as the word of Jesus' victory floods the earth and fills the sky. Wounded by a wound eternal, now his judgment has drawn nigh. Descend your angel legions when the foe would us enslave. Hold us fast when sin assaults us. Come then, Lord, your people save. All right, good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, <laughs> a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Apologies there for getting a little confused. Talking about sing my tongue, uh, I reverted to it. That one I do know by heart. All right, so um, yeah, God be with you all today. It's a little cold, but it's still sunny and blue skies, so that's nice. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow for Divine Service at 9.30 a.m., uh, which will feel like 8.30 a.m. If you made it this far, Tomorrow, daylight savings, don't forget, uh, spring forward, right? So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it'll be a little bit brisk and early, that's fine. Uh, we'll have divine service and uh, Bible study and, of course, uh, Sunday school and uh, coffee and whatnot. It'll be nice. So, I hope I, I hope to see you tomorrow, 930. Uh, otherwise, join us again on Monday for a congregation of prayer. Lord be with you all.